0: Stephen Edwin King is an American author of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science infection, and fantasy novels. His books have sold more than 350 million copies, and many have been adapted into films, television series, miniseries, and comic books. Check the link in the description below to get his top books in audiobook format for free.
1: My name is Alex Merriweather. On behalf of Harvard Bookstore and our co sponsors, the Harvard University Department of English, Tonight, I'm thrilled to introduce our program with Lee Child in conversation with Stephen King, celebrating the publication of the latest Jack Reacher novel, Make Me. Lee Child is the author of 19 previous Jack Reacher books, 10 of which have been number one New York Times bestsellers. Make Me, released just yesterday, is the 20th in the series. Joining Mr. Child tonight is one of his biggest fans. Stephen King is the author of more than 50 books, bestsellers all over the world. We're honored to have him tonight amid a busy week for Mr. King. On Friday, he'll be among the first guests on Stephen Colbert's new Late Show. And it gets better. (laughs) And tomorrow, he'll be an honoree at the White House as a recipient of the National Medal of Arts. On behalf of Harvard Bookstore, please join me in welcoming Lee Child and Stephen King.
0: I wrote a novel called Under the Dome and uh, was, uh, not necessarily to be confused with a TV show. But yeah. I, did. I didn't say anything bad. But uh, the main character, Dale Barber, is an army veteran. And when people are a little bit questioning about his bona fides, he says, go ask this guy, Jack Reacher. Yeah. So what I want to know is, where Reacher came from, because he just suddenly appeared full blown in Killing Floor, and he was just there, boom, he was this presence.
2: Just let me say, first of all, I remember reading that in Under the Dome. I had no idea it was going to be in, and uh, I had a galley that I read in Antigua, and I was lying on the beach reading it, and um, I thought, what? <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of then. I said, I'm
0: going to sue that mother.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the moments like that that you realize, you know, yeah, this is getting somewhere, you know, <laughs> that it, it enters the culture from other directions. And of course I do have a slight bone to pick because Mr. Mercedes, which... Uh, has anybody read Mr. Mercedes? <laughs> Good book. The bad guy, a r- really, really bad guy is in the middle of doing something uh, extremely bad, and it, but he, he has to take a break for like 35 minutes until something else happens, so he pulls out of his backpack, he pulls a Lee Child paperback <laughs> to read it. So Stephen is a sort of equal opportunity promoter, that, you know, <laughs> good guys and bad. But where did Richard come from? I think, you know, the only sensible answer to that is uh, from what I'd read before. You know, all my life you read stuff. And clearly there is a, there's a character that, that has showed up throughout history in all different kinds of contexts all the way back through medieval myths, the Robin Hood stuff, the old Scandinavian myths, the Anglo-Saxon myths, this uh, mysterious stranger. You could even say, it goes all the way back to religious myths, you know, the savior that shows up. And, um, you know, so that was a character that has always existed. And as as a kid, I was interested in that. I was also interested in David versus Goliath, Mm -hmm. except I I was always rooting for Goliath. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of figured, suppose, Goliath was the good guy here um, plus a little bit of wish fulfillment because I only started writing because I got fired from my previous job and uh, you know I was just sick of always feeling kind of um, vulnerable or powerless and, and a, a lot of other people were at the same time and it, just in normal life you do you know you're walking down the street and you're late at night and it's a you're just a little worried about this other guy coming towards you, or those two other guys on the other sidewalk. You, you live with that kind of nervousness and fear all the time, and I just thought, suppose you didn't. You know, suppose you could walk down any street anywhere in the world and pretty much be guaranteed that nobody is going to mess with you. Very empowering feeling. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a lot of universal... How, how the hell do you say that word? If I'd been to Harvard, I would know how to say (laughs) universality. Uh, There's a thing that that I really love about this guy. Uh, He's got no credit cards. He carries cash. He doesn't have a cell phone, uh, the 21st century slave bracelet. Uh, He doesn't have a suitcase. He's got one set of clothes and he has one possession that he carries with him and that's his toothbrush. He has an ATM card I think, doesn't he? He
2: does now because people said it was unrealistic, you know, after (laughs) after 9-11 you can't do that telephone banking.
0: Uh But I think there's something tremendously appealing about that.
2: Yeah, I think that's something that people pick up on as well and I used to think that was a male fantasy, to be honest, that the idea of having no commitments and no obligations and no responsibilities. Um, th- but it turns out anecdotally to be equally a woman's fantasy. They would just love to walk away and be somewhere else tomorrow with nothing tying them down. And uh, you know that old cliche, you don't own things, things own you. Yeah. I think to a certain extent it's true. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also it's rigorously rational. I mean wh- like Rich's approach to clothes. I Talk think, about
0: that a little bit.
2: I thought that was. You guys know because
0: you've seen it, but it's so delicious.
2: <laughs> that was. I mean, really, that was a response to two women writers, um, Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky, who started out, who who really changed the mystery genre in a big way. And as much as they made it very very feminine, not necessarily feminist, although in, in Paretsky's case, absolutely, but feminine in the sense of dealing with real-world situations. I mean, these women had friends, they had neighbors, they ate, they cooked, um, they had money issues. You know, previously in Mysteries or thrillers, you, would, you were in LA and you had to go to Chicago for, to get the next clue, so you would just slap down your credit card and you get on the plane. But in real life, you can't do that. You, your credit card is probably maxed out I mean, that happened to me a couple of times. I've had my credit card taken away at airports. And uh, <laughs> not anymore, happily, but um, <laughs> <laughs> certainly back then I did. And those two women writers introduced realism in that sense, in, in, in every respect, including doing laundry. Right. Uh, I think in Sue Grafton's case, possibly a little too much. Uh, you know, whatever Kinsey yeah, Milhoun is up there's to. A certain,
0: uh, in, in her books to tell you everything, but one thing I do like that's kind of like Reacher is that uh, Kinsey Millhone has one dress. Yeah, it's her all-purpose yeah, yeah. dress. Yeah. Ring, it will not wrinkle. It's, it's black, it's knee-length, and she can stuff it in her purse and take it out yeah, whenever she it. wants. And, and the thing about Reacher and his clothes is he buys them. When, when his clothes get dirty, he throws them away and at first you say, oh, this is not very politically correct, but they're biodegradable. So that's, that part is okay. And he gets them at surplus stores and uh, puts on, on fresh ones. But the thing that really struck me is when he wants to put a crease in his pants, he lifts up the mattress and puts the pants
2: yeah. underneath. And I, at the now, did you have to
0: do that at some time in your I, life?
2: I've always done that, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you do it. I uh, yeah, there's no clothes there. I thought the clothes thing was a rigorously rational. They had placed it on the agenda. What are you going to do about clothes and laundry? So I thought that was just a rational answer, and and I was totally surprised that anybody ever noticed it. Uh But it's one of the things that uh, people love to know about, including his underwear. But uh, and it's very different in America than Europe as well, because in, in America people are very concerned that he wears several, several days he's wearing the same clothes. <laughs> that, is, that is not acceptable to Americans. In Europe, they don't think twice about that. It
0: well, it's, I, uh, I'm not gonna go there. Get your mind out of the gutter. <laughs> now, I mean, uh, I think about it when I, when I go to a hotel and I see these people who are, you know, some bellman has got this cart and they've, there are 12 bags on it and a suit bag and everything else. And it reminds me of that George Carlin routine about how you have to have a place for your sh**. <laughs> you know, and when you go on vacation, you can only take some of your sh**. And you take it in a few suitcases. And if you move, you have like a carry bag for your
2: really important you
0: know, so the idea of not having to carry... I see that, and I wonder,
2: when they're not on vacation, where do they keep these suitcases? Yeah. There's so many of them. Do they have a whole room full of suitcases? They do.
0: I think yeah. some people do. I guess. Raise your hand if you have a whole room full of suitcases. <laughs> you do, some of you, but you're not going to let on. Oh. How do you know so much about the army?
2: Well, you know, I do Part of it is, I'm not sure that I do. I mean, part of it is is the the literary theory that if you set something down in black and white with tremendous confidence and aplomb, (laughs) people will believe it. (laughs) And uh, so I I operate, that's half of my theory. And the other half is that armies are are not all that different. uh, And they probably haven't been all that different ever since the Romans. And uh, my dad was in the British Army in World War II only for two years, but you know, he's 91 now, so that's two years out of 91, but it had a disproportionate effect on him. He, he was constantly talking about it, fascinated by the different culture, the way that the civilian culture is so unrecognizable to the military and vice versa. And so some of it is derived from that, and a lot of it is derived from reading and movies and so on, because the U.S. military, doesn't take noticeable pains to keep itself secret. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all over the world, there's a lot of access to it and so, so I know some of it and the rest I make up. And um, on this tour actually and on several other tours I've uh, done military bases, which is always fun. And um, the first time I did it I dared to ask the question, you know, somebody, some impressive guy came up and said he loved the books and I said so, you know, are they realistic? Is this what it's like? And he said, well, not in my unit, but I assume it's like that in some other unit.
0: <laughs> but there's plenty of stuff about Berlin, when Riecher was in Germany, and it all, well, I mean, I'm going to sound like a dope, but it all sounded real enough to me. Sounds
2: pretty real, huh? Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm interested in... Do you get
0: letters from army people saying this was bullshit or that?
2: It... It's very much rank-dependent, that is. that major, Richard was a major. Major and below, they love the guy, because mm-hmm. he's, he's one of them. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel and above, they hate him, <laughs> because they're thinking, what a nightmare this guy would have been to, to have in the chain of command. So it, that's very rank-dependent. But yeah, there's a lot of military fans, and, um, and a lot of, I'm sure you get this too, you know, people offer advice or help. Or services. i oh, yeah. uh, you know, got an enormous <clears throat> roster of especially retired military, retired law enforcement who are now I guess at liberty to tell me things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say if you want if you want to know something just just ask. And I do occasionally and some of it is, uh, some of it is, some of it just reinforces actually you may as well make it up because it, there was a book, uh, which book, it was a wanted man where I, I invented a kind of motel. That the FBI had bought this distant motel and put a fence around it, and it was for quarantining inconvenient witnesses, mm-hmm. like involuntary witness protection. And you know, the, it wasn't a prison; they had committed no crime, but they had to be kept incommunicado for a week or two. And I, so I wrote all that, and then I thought, you know, is that is that? Are people going to laugh at that? So I called one of these retired FBI guys and said, I've got this scene where there's this motel, but I said, is that even remotely plausible? And the guy said, oh yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got some go-to guys and it's important that you be able to trust them because you come to them sometimes <clears throat> with very strange questions about uh, uh, you know, anything from Bomb-making to projectile vomiting to <laughs> anything else. I, I can't think of any specific uh, things right off hand. I, I, some things from Dr. Sleep" uh, about uh, uh, hospice care and that sort of thing, and some great stories that came out of that. Um, you're British, mm-hmm. I mean. <laughs> yeah. But you really know America. How did
2: that happen? Well, again, I it, mean,
0: you really know America. There's a really, there's a, there's a loving sort of close, textured feel.
2: Well, I, yeah, there, it is loving. I love America, and uh, I always have. I, I was, I mean, I'm old enough to remember a period when there was no instant communication. You know, America in Britain, America was a long way away, and uh, it was there was evidence of America in Britain from the G.I.s who had been, you know, my earliest memories are probably about, say, ten years after the last of the G.I.s left, and, and there was a folk memory of them being there, and some, there were some archaeological remains, you know, somebody would have a, a stick of gum still wrapped, there would be a, you know, packet of Lucky Strikes, somebody would have half of a Superman comic, or something like that, so America was remote and mysterious, and Very appealing to me for some reason. I just instinctively felt that I should be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, when did
0: you come for the first time? The
2: first time I ever came was 1974. Um, I had met this American girl in in college in Britain, and uh, I mean it was 1974, and I remember thinking, "God, she's cute," and uh, I mean, and she really was. And so we, it was that very casual thing. We, we went to a party together, I remember, on a Friday night. And, and I, I went back to her place and she said, um, Are you staying? And I said, Yeah, may as well. And uh, <laughs> I thought. Nothing I th- better to do. Yeah, Exactly. Nothing. There had been a choice <laughs> of nothing two. On and TV. Uh, there had been a choice of two at that party. And I thought, Well, I'll try this one and then the other one next. And I thought maybe. <laughs> Uh, this could be a couple of weeks of really good fun and that couple of weeks just last month turned into 40 years. So, uh, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so the very first summer, you know, she's from New York, she goes home to New York and uh, I went with her and it was just magical from the first moment. The, the cheapest way to get there, there was a student fair on Air France to, to Montreal Mm-hmm. And then you flew down on uh, Eastern Airlines uh, to LaGuardia, and it circled Manhattan for about 20 minutes before it could land. And I, I just thought, "Wow, I've not gone to heaven." But I also thought, "Where's the soundtrack?" Uh-huh. Because you were so used to seeing that, that scene in movies. Um, so yeah, from that is, uh, and then I emigrated here in '98. And part of emigration is you have to fill in a whole bunch of forms. You have to also have a chest x-ray to prove you don't have tuberculosis. You've got to have no police record, all that kind of stuff. And part of checking your police record is you've got to list every visit that you've made. And in those from 74 to 98, which is 24 years, I'd visited exactly 100 times that I had to list. So, you know, I I felt, especially with the outsider's eye, because that's what I love about telling stories about America to Americans, you can look at it through your outsider eye and stuff that you are all so familiar with, you're not seeing anymore. is still fascinating to me.
0: That's good. That's good. I like that. Um, yeah, But there's, a, um, there's uh, at least one Reacher book that's set in New York that has a lot of subway stuff in it. Uh-huh. Is that the only New York Reacher book?
2: I guess he's in New York a little bit in Tripwire, um, back and forth. But yeah, Gone Tomorrow was the subway book, and that was my sort of homage to New York. But the, again, interesting in writing it, because I, I was living there at that time, and uh, I'm, I was writing the book completely accurately. Yeah. But the accuracy turned out to be a, a pain. You know, they were driving from the Dakota building down to uh, the West Village or somewhere, and I had, I had them doing it as you would. Mm-hmm. But then I reread the page, and it was like reading a MapQuest page on acid or something, you know. <laughs> One way street, and no left turn, and all of this. So that to me became an absolute example of how actually you've got to get things wrong to get them right. Mm-hmm. Because I just simplified the geography. I figured people knew the west side, they knew the east side. They knew the villages at the bottom, they know Harlem's at the top, Central Park's in the middle, so I just basically, like they come down the West Side Highway and turn left into Houston Street, which you absolutely can't do. But I figured that, you know, for the rest of the world, it's, it's and I've done yeah, that no, many you, times. You
0: make it up, don't you? Yeah. <laughs>
2: One of the books was about Texas, and I wanted to uh, include the you know the state police, the highway troopers, because that is a concept that everyone in the world understands because they've watched chips on television, you know, <laughs> California Highway Patrol. They understand that there is this th- state police thing, and so I call it the s- State Police, but of course, in Texas, it's not called the state Police, it's called the Department of Public security mm-hmm. and uh, or public safety, or something like that. And I thought, well, you know. If I I put that down, then great, everybody in Texas is going to nod their head, but everybody everywhere else in the world is going to say, what is this Department of Public Safety? Restaurant inspectors? (laughs) So I I called it state police, even though that's wrong, it was kind of right.
0: But uh, I would say the great majority of the books, including uh, Make Me, which has one of the shock endings of all time. And I say that, I'm Case hardened, you know, <laughs> but it has one of the shock endings of all time. But a lot of the books are set in nowhere. And you really seem to understand nowhere. I'm a country guy myself. And I love the middle of the United States, Nebraska, and I think make me, although you never say specifically, must be Oklahoma,
2: Northern Oklahoma, and Kansas, Northern Oklahoma,
0: yeah. and there's yeah. nothing there, but you got it down pat. And I feel like you love those places. You must have spent some time there in the real world.
2: Yeah, I have. I've spent, uh, I'm like Rita, i spent a lot of time just going aimlessly from place to place because why not? And um, I do love that interior. It's, it's, you know, look at it from a European perspective where, um, you know, I worked in a a city called uh, Manchester. And uh, you know, if you're into soccer, that's where Manchester United and Manchester City is. And then there's uh, down the road, 30 miles down the road is Liverpool, where Liverpool Football Club is. And those two are completely different cultures. They could be different planets, but they're 30 miles apart. And so from a European perspective, the idea that you come to America and you put yourself in the position of those early settlers, you come to America and you see the Hudson River. My God, what a big river! You know, mm-hmm. and then you carry on and on and on, and you see the Mississippi. Like unbelievable, and then you—it cr- takes you months to cross the plains, and you see the Rocky Mountains. You know, that is just amazing, and it's still all there, and it's still pretty empty in the middle. And so I've, I've I've seen, and I love the that disjunction that happened in the 1950s when the interstate system was put in place. It, that immediately. Um, relegated lots of other roads to, to purposelessness, but they're still there, you know, with these little tiny towns with you no purpose anymore. You read
0: Highways more. by William Least Heat Moon. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, it's a great book. We want to throw this open for Q and i I'm going to have to catch a plane tonight because I have to go to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a little yeah.
2: thing. But, yeah. Yeah, oh, like, stop. No, don't stop. I mean, this it, is such a good thing. I'm, I'm a big Obama fan, but I think he fi- finally, he, this is the finest crowning achievement of his uh, administration. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you do have a way with words, Mr. Child. I have, I have a couple of questions, quick questions, and, and then we'll go to the audience. Uh, Tell us about the Reacher movie that's coming out.
2: Yeah, we, the, uh, we just finally, it, it finally got uh, all solid and, and it's uh, starting to shoot next month and it will be released one year later, October 21st, 2016. They did it kind of backwards. They announced the release date first and then figured out when they would make it. And uh, so it's, it's shooting in New Orleans starting next month uh, based on Never Go Back, which is a book from a couple of years ago. Um, Tom Cruise again. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm very much looking forward to the experience. <laughs> I'm especially looking forward to hearing from you all about your opinion on the casting.
0: <laughs> I wanted to a- ask you one writerly question and that is in the early books they're all third person, and then there are a number of books where Reacher narrates, and now we're back to the third person. Was that a conscious decision? Or did you have a reason for that?
2: Yeah. D- d-
0: Probably nobody gives a shit about this <laughs> but me, but yeah. I care. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was the first, the Killing Floor was first person, and, and then the second many were third person. And, oh, and part of it was that I felt that uh, a writer can be stereotyped just as much as an actor or something like that, so if I was to do a, the second book similar to the first, it would kind of oblige me to do similar books throughout the whole series. so I thought do the second book as different as possible from the first uh, while still about the same character, which meant switching from first to third, switching to a kind of more high concept plot with FBI White House and all that kind of stuff and you know, to be completely frank about it, it's it's a high-wire writing first person, because it's I, I, I all the time, and you you, you start to feel very self-obsessed. And um, uh, I, I think I lost my nerve a little bit. It, it's third person is much more comforting. You, you can say things in third person. Uh, you know, I could say, he's a good-looking guy who has no trouble with women. You can't say that in first person. Uh, hey.
0: But the other thing <laughs> that, that I noticed in, in uh, Make Me is that it allows you to leverage Reacher. And go back to the town and see what's going on there, and moves and counter-moves. So.
2: Exactly the sort of A-B thing that, it, what in television you would call A-roll and B-roll, that you can, meanwhile, back at the ranch, in other words, yeah. which is essentially really helpful for a thriller because it's automatic suspense. That if you you know see so Rachel walking down the street, then you cut away to the bad guy waiting around the corner. There is automatic suspense.
0: Are you ever going to do a standalone, do you think, a novel that departs from Reacher? I'm sure you get tired of that question, but I'm curious. Uh,
2: there are, I've got a load of ideas I would love to do, but I think that, uh, you know, I'm not as prolific as some, and, um <laughs> <laughs> So, it would really mean taking a year off Reacher, and uh, I feel like you know, happily, gloriously, people are into him. And to say, look, I'm sorry guys, you're gonna have to wait a year for The Mm Reacher, try this instead. You know, that's a losing proposition. That book starts with two strikes against it, essentially. Uh,
1: Mr. King, uh, Mr. Child, um, my name is Ben. I have a question about writing itself. Um, There are some stories that are best told in a linear way, and there are other stories that are good to go using flashbacks or a non-linear way. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a writer, When and how do you decide when to go in a linear or non-linear way?
0: Well, I generally don't. I I let the story. You know, uh, Alfred Bester, the the science fiction writer. I heard this from uh, my my agent, who who's now passed away. But uh, Alfred Bester was one of his clients. He wrote *The Stars, My Destination* and *The Demolished Man*. And uh, Alfie used to say, "The book is the boss, and the story is the boss too." So that I think in a way it goes to what Lee was saying about uh, whether you tell it in the first person or the third person, you know, the story asks you to, to tell it in a certain way. And usually with a piece of short fiction, you don't need as much backstory. It's usually just what's in front. So uh, it, it's on a case by case basis. I think you try to tell what the reader needs to know.
2: Yeah, which is what I need to know, you know, because I, I, I'm, I'm permanently in the position of the reader that uh, this is a story that's being told to me uh, just as much as anything else. So, And I'm, I don't have a plan, you know. I don't think, OK, yeah, I'm going to interject a bit of backstory here or there. It just happens. You just feel it. For me, it's entirely instinctive.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's an important thing. I've never heard anybody actually articulate that quite so well. In a way, what we do, we're stenographers. The, yeah. the story is being told to us and we put it down.
2: You said you wouldn't want to take a year off from each, but could you do a joint venture? <clears throat> you know, <laughs> <laughs> Like a small three or four hundred pages? Uh, well, Steve's got, I think, uh, actually contemporary experience of working with other writers. I've only ever done short fiction with other writers. and. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I could do a whole novel with somebody else. I, I don't play well with others because, <laughs> and, and like I say, you know, it's 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 not up for discussion. This is the story. This um, my editor will often say to me, uh, "Wouldn't it be better if this happened after that?" And I would say, "Yeah, probably," but it didn't. So much of the Reacher
1: character is based on his size. He's a big guy, he can take care of himself no matter where he is. Tom Cruise as the Reacher character in the movies. A lot of us wondered about it. Any thoughts?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. That, you know, a huge part of Reacher is, is, is his size, and like I said, the Goliath thing. I mean, imagine that you walk into a room and, and the room sort of just goes a little quiet and chilled because there's an enormous, impressive physical presence. You're absolutely right. That is the reach of character. And part of the problem with the movie is you will never, ever match the character. The, the, the character in the movie will always be diminished than in the book. Because in the book, it's your imagination running free. You're not tied down to any physical reality. So the movie is always going to be worse. And so <laughs> it's a. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, I can think of maybe two two movies that are better than the book out of the thousands that I've seen, and um, so you, you accept that it will be a, a compromise, and the Tom Cruise thing is an, physically an extreme compromise in exchange for what I felt were solid virtues in, in the internals of Reacher. I th- you know, he did a great job of capturing certain aspects of Reacher, and that is a dramatic, Example of the compromise, you know, he is smaller than Reacher by a certain amount and you could have found You could have found an actor that was only seven inches shorter than Reacher possibly Um, But really did it matter, you know, and this is a thing that really uh, It really took me by surprise, you know, the books are the thing for me and uh, Tom Cruise will not come to your house and steal your books And when the movie came out, I I did an experiment, when the movie came out I pulled my copy of one shot off the shelf and all the words were still in it, you know. The book is still there.
0: I, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, movie makers are so um, wonderful at masking uh, that particular problem. Yes, Tom Cruise is a relatively short man. And uh, I've worked with uh, actors before who were short, and there's this wonderful special effects device It's called the Apple Box. <laughs> and uh, all at once, your leading man is taller than your leading lady, uh, the way that people sort of expect that to see. But the extreme case of that, um, is I wrote a book called The Green Mile, which was made into a movie by Frank <laughs> Barabaugh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, Frank cast uh, uh, Tom Hanks as the lead and a relatively unknown, not completely unknown, actor named Michael Clark Duncan to play John Coffey, who is this uh, death row. And 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 in the uh, movie, I mean in the book, John Coffey is supposed to be. Uh, an African American reacher in the sense that he is a very, very big man who's very, very muscled out. And Michael Clark Duncan, God rest his soul, is gentlest, sweetest man, I mean, that, that you could ever want to meet. He was amazingly buffed out, you know, you just felt like a wimp when you walked into the room with him. So, but he was short. And you don't know that he's short. In the film, because he 's shot from up angles and because he 's standing on an apple box, or in some cases because Tom Hanks was actually standing in a in a hole <laughs> to make the difference between them to make Michael Clark Duncan hulk over him and you know, I think that there 's been a conflation when it comes to Tom Cruise between his acting and some of his personal beliefs and uh, I think that it's uh, is understandable, but it's a little bit unfortunate. He is a tremendously physical actor, a t- tremendously able physical actor, and he's, he's good with lines and he has uh, what we call star power. But you know, I was sort of amazed to find out that in the last Mission Impossible movie he did a lot of the stunts himself, including hanging off an airplane. And that's something that even Reacher might not want to do. So Tom Cruise is okay with me. It's okay with a guy going to the White House (laughs) tomorrow. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you.
2: Um, I was a flight attendant
0: with Eastern, and I didn't know anybody ever remembered that airline, so thanks a lot for that. <laughs> got a little flutter there. Um, I, too, have read every one of your books. I inhale them, and then I sit around and foam at the mouth till the next one comes. But um, you, the way you describe your scenes, the fight scenes, I mean, you have the directions, you have. The foot movements, everything is just unbelievable. So I wonder, do you sit in your little room and act it out and then write it down?
2: <laughs> no, I just, I, I just close my eyes and remember when I was about 9 or 10. Uh, I was totally Jack Reacher when I was about 9 or 10. Um, I grew big very early and uh, I ruled the yard. Um, <laughs> By the time I was 14 or 15, everybody else had caught up, and it became a little more troublesome. But uh, I had some glorious years in there, and uh, I remember it well. Didn't win them all. I've got some missing teeth as a result, and so on. But uh, you know, largely it was it was a, it was pretty good. And I, so I just think back: what what did I do on that day? And uh, just write it down. Yeah. So I was wondering if you have a favorite Reacher moment, whether it's a fight or
1: a deduction or a decision he made. Is there, is there one that sticks out as your favorite?
2: For me, uh, I think there's one. It's not so much a moment, it's just a sort of attitude. That there was, uh, it was impersonal last year. Uh, he, he's hit a couple of guys and thrown them in the back of a van. And they're driving along. And the, the woman with him looks in the back and says, Reacher, one of them is not breathing. And he says, what am I, a doctor? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Child, was Stephen King the model for Jack Reacher because he's very tall and we know he's (laughs) invincible? Well, I got to say, I, I got, you know, I got to just place on record that uh, this is the most fabulous job and it has given me all kinds of opportunities and, and this is one of them. I mean, how, how unlikely is this, that uh, this could ever happen? Yeah. Well, I took the job because
0: I'm a fan, you know, I don't want to turn this into a touchy feeling love feast or anything, but it's, it's also good for me, darling. <laughs> yeah.
2: hello um, I'm sure that you both get asked all the time where your inspirations come
1: from um, but what do you think for both of you is the strangest and most surprising place that an inspiration for one of your books has ever come from
2: yeah no that could be diff- it, it could be uh, there's two levels there. I mean, the inspiration for the book is, is you know, you, it, there's not just one thing in a book, you know, there's two or three things in a book that have to collide, like atoms yeah. collide to make a molecule. And you've got to pick those ideas to make it a stable molecule that's useful. So, and they come from various different places. But uh, for me, the idea of being a writer as such uh, was never really the thing. I wanted to be an entertainer. Um, you know, ideally I wanted to be in the Beatles. <laughs> uh, that was plan A. <laughs> and it uh, didn't work. So, so I wanted the whole thing of just entertaining an audience. And I, I do draw, I draw a ridiculously large amount of inspiration from, from uh, something I read in a Beatles biography years ago. I think it was the Hunter Davis one, you know, the first official Beatles biography. And it tells the story of January 1964. Uh, They're in Paris, playing a week at the Olympia, and um, they're staying in the Georges V Hotel. Uh, And I Want to Hold Your Hand has been released in the U.S. that January. And they've done the show in Paris, they're back in the hotel room, there's a transatlantic telephone call, which back in 1964 was a big deal. And it comes to the room and Brian Epstein takes the call, he listens, he puts the phone down, and he says, boys, you're number one in America. And that line uh, somehow just stayed with me. And, you know, again, from a European perspective, to invade this giant market and become number one. And I, was, I guess I was uh, probably about 10 when I read that story, and that became my ambition to be number one in America. And it's down to you to make sure it happens. <laughs>
0: Lee, tell these people about the band you were in and uh, who helped you move your equipment.
2: Yeah, we were talking about this last night. I mean, like, if you divided the teenage population of Britain by four, that was the number of bands that were. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was in a band called, I was 14 years old, I was in a band, and, and, uh, this was 1968 in the summer, we called it Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> No, wait, that's not the good part. So that's where he gets his inspiration. But, uh, (laughs) and we, because we were schoolboys, we we had, we had booked rehearsal time in this municipal facility uh, till 11 o'clock at night, because we were schoolboys, we had to go to school the next day. And the really cool kids who didn't have to go to school had booked it from 11 through the night. And uh, this really cool kid, 19 years old, uh, came in to, to look at the facility. And of course, when you're 14, a 19-year-old is just a god. And this guy was very handsome, had long blonde hair, very well-spoken local kid. And he, he, he said he was taking a look because his band was coming in the next night at 11. So sure enough, we rehearsed all night. And then at 11, he came in with his band and he helped, they helped us push our gear to one side. We helped them push their gear into the middle. The the well-spoken, blonde-haired boy was Robert Plant. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was Led Zeppelin's second rehearsal.
0: Man, I love that story. I love that story. Next question. Mr. King, you once said that if you write something and somebody paid you for it and they send you a check and you cash the check and it doesn't bounce and you pay the light bill with it, I consider you talented. Does the check they send have to cover the whole light bill? (laughs) No. Yes! (laughs) Okay, we've solved that. (laughs) So in the study of creativity, usually they say there's a phase of uh, incubation where
1: you cannot come up with ideas. But then you go into the elimination and you have ideas out of nowhere. Does that really happen with you?
2: You know, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's one of the divides between, uh, between writers and non-writers, this whole idea about ideas as if ideas are difficult things to get. Um, you, you know, it's not that ideas are scarce and that you're hunting around and glad when you f- find one. Um, Ideas are, you're bombarded by them constantly, uh, you know, every single day. You get up in the morning and you, you check the news or read the paper or whatever, you've, right there you've got five ideas and as you go through the day, you're gonna have 10 or even 20 ideas and that happens every day. So ideas are really not hard to come by. It's, it's much more of a, of a sense of being able to spot which ideas are gonna be interesting for an entire book and which ideas are going to be durable enough to still be interesting next year when the book comes out, it's much more of a selection amongst many ideas than than a hunt for ideas. That's what I think.
0: Yeah. um, And what you said before, a lot of times two things come together to form the the necessity to write the story, like the ideas, as Lee said, the ideas come and go and they're almost Stuff that sifts down that falls through the, the sieve in your mind and disappears. Um, I was coming back from uh, Florida, I was driving, this was probably four years ago, and uh, there's a story on the local news in South Carolina where I stopped for the night about a woman who ran into a bunch of job seekers at a McDonald's. Uh, She's mad at her husband or her boyfriend who had left her and uh, went out to get him and just ran. <coughs> ran people down like nine pins, and uh, then backed up over a bunch more. And I thought, well, that's a really awful thing. And uh, it's amazing. And just, you, you know, the standard things that people think, I can't believe somebody did that, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. And then maybe the next day when I'm driving or something, I thought to myself, well, what if somebody did that on purpose to kill as many people as they possibly could? could, and there was a cop that couldn't solve the case, but then after he retired, this guy started to, you know, to haunt him and stalk him about that. And then I said to myself, bingo, I want to write that. The two things came together in my mind, and that's, that's what happens. You but- get
2: them everywhere. I, I, w- I did a, a library event in, uh, in Chicago in June, and you know how we were sort of waiting back there. I was waiting behind this screen until they did all, and I could hear two people talking. They were real close to me, but there was a screen so they couldn't see that I was there. And two women, and one said to the other, oh, I've had a hell of a day. I had to take my snake to the vet. (laughs) And her friend said, uh, why, what was wrong with it? Well, for three weeks it hadn't eaten, and it was getting longer. And her friend said, well, what did the vet say? Well, the vet asked me, does the snake sleep with you? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, it does. It sleeps in the bed. The vet said, it's getting ready to eat you.
0: (laughs) And ladies and gentlemen, on that note, thank you very much.
1: reasons why she thinks it's so hard to mobilize people around climate change or divestment is because um, it's a strategy, not an identity.
0: Stephen Edwin King is an American author of horror, supernatural fiction, suspense, crime, science fiction, and fantasy novels. His books have sold more than 350 million copies, and many have been adapted into films, television series, miniseries, and comic books. Check the link in the description below to get his top books in Audiobot format for free.